to give you some idea of how perverse my mind is, when we sang that next to last song, the first time we sang it in the first service, I thought David was saying there will be no dieting there, (laughs) which is a happy thought. As the Negro spiritual says, we'll just roll around heaven all day. Would you turn with me, please, to 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. Both of these Thessalonian letters contain a great deal of prophecy. There's a strong predictive element in both of these letters. And uh, whenever a prophetic theme is announced, uh, I think everyone is intrigued. As Carolyn often says, we like to get back to the future in these Old Testament books. We forget, perhaps, that um, they, uh, the predictive element in both the Old and New Testament is given, first of all, to authenticate the writer. That was one of the ways you could know if the writer was speaking for God. And secondly, we often forget that the details of prophecy are often very, very vague. That unsettles us. We don't like that. We like to get the future ironed out. We want to know exactly what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. We want all of our ducks in a row. We like to have the timetable laid out and secure so we know exactly what will happen. And unfortunately, the Bible does not do that for us. Uh, The disciples once asked Jesus, is this, this was after the resurrection, is this now the time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus' response is that it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. Those are fixed by the Father's hands. Your task is to evangelize the nations, beginning at home. Uh, That expression, times and seasons, is an idiom that's used uh, a number of places. It's used here in 1 Thessalonians 5, as we'll see in a moment. Times refers to a date on the calendar. Seasons refers to the circumstances that surround that date. For example, Thanksgiving this year is November the 23rd. That's the date on the calendar. There are a number of circumstances that surround the event, uh, the gathering of children and family and the turkey and the stuffing. That's just another word for the meal. And... uh, the Christmas shopping that begins Thanksgiving, and all of the things that transpire around that particular date, those are the seasons or the circumstances. Um, Jesus said it's not for us to know the times and the seasons. We don't know. It's exactly what the Old Testament prophets did not know about the first coming of Christ. Peter makes that very clear in chapter 1, verse 11 of First Peter. He says the prophets themselves... Uh, looked intently into what they were writing. They didn't even understand their own writing. As to the times and the circumstances when the Messiah would come, they couldn't put together his coming as a suffering Messiah and the glory that is to come. What they did not know about the first coming of Jesus is what we do not know about the second coming of Jesus. We simply don't know. Now, you know, to me, it's it's so sad when we as Christians divide up over issues that are very unclear to us. Some believe the Lord is coming seven years. He's coming to rapture the church seven years before his 
second coming. Some believe that the Lord will come in the middle of what is called the tribulation period, the seven years that precedes the second coming of Christ. Others would say that the rapture of the church is coterminous with the second coming. It's the same event. I think we should make up our minds. We should know what we believe for ourselves, but it should never, never divide us as Christians. The emphasis that Scripture makes is always on the kind of character that we ought to have as a result of our knowledge that the Lord is coming back. Peter puts it that way. Seeing all these things are to be destroyed, burned up, is the word that he used. What manner of people ought we to be? You see, that's the emphasis. I, uh, I think uh, Ruth Bell Graham's poem is particularly apt. Why argue and fight and worry how the world ends? Pray for the best, prepare for the worst, and take whatever God sends. I like that. I think life with our Lord is a lot like uh, life for the Israelites in the wilderness. They got up every morning and the first thing they did was uh, to look at the, the cloud. They could see it all night because it was a pillar of fire. They could see it during the day because it was a cloud. And uh, the first thing they did was to look at the cloud, and if the cloud had lifted, then they would start packing up all their gear. They'd load, uh, they'd load all their supplies on their animals, and they'd get ready to move. And they would wait until the cloud moved, and they'd follow it through the day. They had no idea where they were going to be that night. Not the slightest idea, not a clue. But they followed the cloud through the wilderness, and they got to the end of the day. They could look back and know that they had followed the course. They'd kept the course. They were on course. They were where God wanted them to be. We don't like to live with that uncertainty. We would prefer our human uncertainty to divine uncertainty. We'd rather rely on ourselves and our own planning and scheming rather than keep our eyes on the Lord Whereas all of Scripture tells us to just keep following Him, just keep our eyes on Him, just don't look away to anything else, just look at Him and, and He'll get us to the right place at the right time, and that's true of all of life. One of these days, He's going to come back. We know that for certain. When that will be, how that will happen, the exact circumstances, we simply do not know. We have to live with that uncertainty. C.S. Lewis, uh, in the last of his, no, pardon me, the first of his uh, space trilogy, Paralandra. No, it's the second, isn't it? Doesn't matter. Anyway, it's one of them. <clears throat> it's the second, yeah, Paralandra. Describes the king and queen living on floating islands of vegetation. They were prohibited from living on the fixed land, that is, on the continents. They had to live on these islands that floated around. Great deal of uncertainty except their certainty was in the will of God. That's the way we have to live. We don't know. I don't know when the Lord's coming back. I just know he's going to come back. That I am sure of. And there are certain responsibilities that are ours as a result, and it's this that Paul is concerned about in 1 Thessalonians 5. Let's uh, read the first paragraph of that chapter. Now, brothers, about times and dates, times and seasons, that's the phrase that, our Lord used in Acts 1 7. It's not for you, you to know the times and the seasons. If we're thinking about, a, about circling a date on the calendar, we can't do that. 
Now, brothers, about times and seasons, we don't need to write to you, for you know very well that the, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, we're not so uh, knowledgeable. We haven't been instructed by the Apostle Paul quite like these people were. And perhaps none of you have read Matthew, or some of you have not read Matthew 24, the passage that Don read to us earlier, but our Lord said exactly the same thing. He said he, he himself didn't even know the times and the seasons. These things are given on a need-to-know basis. The Son of Man, in the Incarnation, when he laid aside his omniscience, did not know the day of his coming. He just uh, said it will be like a thief in the night. Some will be unprepared. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people, that is one set of people, are saying peace and safety, destruction, uh, ruination is the word. Everything that gives value to life is taken away. That's the meaning of the term. Ruination will come on them suddenly. As labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. Now there's a day to which Paul refers that we need to understand. He calls it the day of the Lord. It's a phrase that's, uh, that occurs a number of places in the Old Testament. Perhaps the first of the prophets is Joel. Occurs also in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi, and uh, Amos, other of the prophets. They referred to the time when God has his day. Man is having his day right now. Human beings are permitted to do as they please, pretty much, unrestrained. Permitted to do a great deal of damage. Permitted to hurt one another harm their own lives as well as others. God is not trying to run the world right right now. But one of these days, he's going to have his day. That's the way the prophets looked at it. And when his day comes, it will, day, it will be a day when he's manifest as God in all of his glory. God undisguised, as C.S. Lewis put it. That's the great day. That's the day that we're looking for. Amos said, the, uh, the people of Amos' day were, were saying pretty much what we say. Why doesn't God do something about the mess this world is in? Why doesn't he deal with uh, child pornographers and those that molest children and those that batter wives and, and the violence and the crime and the, the, the crudeness of life? Why doesn't God do something? They were saying the same thing then. And Amos said, I don't think you want that to happen because if God comes, he'll not only deal with those forms of sin, he will judge sin right across the board. And those of you that are asking for God to come back and set things right are not finding your security in God. You're not safe in him and you're going to experience judgment as well. He said it'll be like a man who goes out to hunt bear or lion rather and, and he escapes from the lion and he runs right into the paws of a bear and he escapes from the bear and he runs home and he shuts the door and he leans against the wall and he heaves a great sigh of relief and a snake bites him. So I, I, don't, I don't think you want the day of the Lord because that's the day that God is going to judge right across the board. And those that are not safe in God will experience wrath. God is waiting. He's waiting. Why is he waiting? He's, because he wants 
people to respond to his call. He, he wants people to love him in response to his love. He's, he's waiting for us to announce the gospel to people around us so that they can be brought in. That's Peter's argument. People were saying things go on as they have always gone, gone on. The world hasn't changed a bit. Everything is uniform. It's consistent. And uh, Peter says, you have forgotten that at least once in history, God did judge the whole world. That was through a flood. And you've forgotten that the, pro- the apostles and the prophets predicted that God was coming back to judge the world. Why is he delaying? He's not willing that any should perish. Because if he comes back to judge the world, he's going to have to judge everyone. And everyone will feel the wrath of God except those that are safe in Christ. That's the great and terrible day of the Lord, as Amos describes it. And it's the most certain thing in the universe is going to happen one of these days. C.S. Lewis describes it in this way. God's going to invade this earth in force. But what is the good of saying you're on his side then when you see the whole universe melting down like a dream? And something else, something that never entered your head to conceive, comes crashing in. Something so beautiful to some, to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There's no use saying you choose to lie down when it's become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we have already chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Now today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. He's waiting, you see. But for those that are unprepared, one of these days, he will appear. And people will be saying peace and safety. And Paul says ruination will come upon them suddenly. Jesus said uh, it will be much like the, the, the day of Noah when people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving and marriage. Nothing wrong with any of those activities. It's just that they were tripping their way through life, partying their way through life, having a great time. Thinking about what life can provide, but not thinking about what life means or what life is for or where they're headed or where they came from. They're not thinking seriously about spiritual things. And suddenly the flood came and took them all away. Jesus said that's the way it will be when Jesus comes back. Some will be, two will be together at the mill grinding and one will be taken and one will be left. They'll be caught by surprise. But you, he says are not in darkness. He will come like a thief in the night to those that are unprepared. The way to catch a thief is to stay up. If you really think that a thief is is going to break into your house some night, you'll you'll stay up. You'll keep the lights on. You'll be alert. And that's the way Paul is is arguing. You brothers are not in darkness. You're not in the dark. You're in the know. You know that Jesus is coming back. The rest of the world is saying God will never intervene. He has no interest in this world. Paul says he does. He's coming back. And you're not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the dark. Or pardon me, sons of the day. 
this uh, idiom, sons of, sons of the light, sons of the day, uh, is a, a consistent idiom throughout the New Testament for those who are characterized by a certain thing. They have the inherent characteristics of the thing from which they sprang. They come from the light, so they are. they have light. They come from the day, so they have day. They're sons of God, so they're like God. That's, that's the idea. And Paul characterizes us as those who do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So, let's not be like those who are. Those who are in the dark who don't realize that our Lord's coming back. Let's be alert. Stay awake. Don't go to sleep. And be self-controlled, that is, be sober. Take life seriously. It's the opposite of being drunk, as he points out. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let's be sober. Again, self-controlled, as the NIV puts it, but it's the word sober. We're not partying our way through life. We're not acting in frivolous ways. We don't, we're not trivializing life. We're fun-loving. Christians ought to be uh, fun-loving. Someone said that uh, that a Puritan is someone who has the sneaking suspicion that someone somewhere is having a good time. That was not true of the Puritans, actually, and it should not be true of us. We ought to be the most fun-loving people in the world, but at the same time, we need to be very serious about life. We need to be thinking about what we're here for where we came from, where we're going, what our purpose is in life. Our purpose in life is not merely to, to retire or to make a lot of money or to acquire a lot of, lot of possessions. We're here to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what Paul is saying is if we really understand that one of these days everything we have is going to burn up, our real estate our ground, the ground that our properties are on, you know, our condos, our boats, our skis, all the equipment that we spend a great deal of time and money amassing, it's all going to burn up someday. It's going to change our perspective on things. Not that it's wrong to have any of these articles. It's just that if that's our preoccupation, then we really don't understand the meaning and the significance of life. We're investing ourselves in a treasure that's going to burn up. We saw some poignant examples of that in the San Francisco earthquake of three weeks ago. You may have seen the interview with one woman who was standing in front of her house in the marina. Her house was flat. There was no first story any longer. It used to be a two-story house, and now it's a one-story house. And she said, everything I own was in that house. And I thought, how tragic. How tragic. To invest everything that we have in something that can be shaken by an earthquake or something that can be burned up or something that will be burned up someday. So what Paul is saying is that those who live in the day have a different set of values characterized by faith, love, and hope. You know how he puts it, verse 8, Since we belong to the day, let's be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. How simple can you, can you get? 
We're supposed to love people and believe God and hope in our salvation. We will not face wrath. That's what Paul is saying. That's judicial wrath. In a number of places, he's talked in 1 Thessalonians about the coming wrath. Chapter 1, verse 10, Jesus, who, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And then again in chapter 3, you have the same statement. And then here in chapter 5, we're saved from wrath. That is the wrath of God that falls upon those that are not sheltered in, in Christ. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I've mentioned before that Paul speaks of salvation in terms of three tenses. There is past salvation, which is deliverance from the guilt of sin, from the penalty of sin, that is death. Uh, the second tense of salvation is the ongoing process of sanctification, what God, the work that God is doing in our life right now. And ultimate salvation is when God wraps the whole thing up and we enter into our eternal state. That's when God says, it's all finished, it's over, it's done. You have an eternity to live with me. Paul is talking about that final phase of salvation. God has not appointed us to wrath but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. How did he do that? He died for us. So that whether we are awake, that is living, or asleep, that is dead, we may live together with him. That goes back to chapter 4, verse 13, where he talked about certain Christians that were asleep, that is, they had died, and those others that were awake that would be alive, perhaps, when the Lord came back. Some of you may be alive when the Lord came He could come back any time. And in view of the fact that he's going to come back, how should we live our lives? So we should love people and we should uh, keep, keep clinging to God, keep hanging on to him, keep trusting him, keep believing him, keep relying on him, keep counting on him. You see what, what that does, understanding that our Lord is coming back is it gives us a whole new set of values. Tony Campola just came out with a book uh, entitled Who Switched the uh, Price Tag? Some of you may have seen it. I've Heard him use this illustration on a number of tapes about the pranksters that broke into a clothing store and switched all the price tags on uh, articles of clothing in the store. And so people the next morning walked in, and here was a shirt that normally sold for $19.95, and it had a $150 price tag on it. And here was a suit that sold for $250, and it had a, a $49.95 price tag. People didn't know the difference. They were snatching up all these clothes, thinking they were making wonderful buys because they had had no sense of, of, of the proper uh, value of these, of these items. And that's what Paul says. If we realize that everything we're investing our life in in this earth that is temporal and transient and passing, one of these days it's all going to burn up. It's over. It's gone. And that changes our way of looking at all of life. It changes the way we spend our time. It changes... The energy that we put into certain activities, it changes the amount of time that we spend doing certain things because we realize that most of what we're doing is not going to last. It's passing. It's transient. It's going to burn up. How many of us have invested a lot of time and a lot of energy building up a stock portfolio so we can retire? Or we put a lot of money into a retirement fund so we can retire, and how do we know we're going to make it? Maybe the Lord's going to come back, hopefully, before any of us reach that point, and it's all going to be gone. Or we may die before we can take advantage of the things that we've invested in. 
and it's all going to be gone. I've told you before the story of my friend uh, Lee Yi, who is a stockbroker with uh, Goldman Sachs, a graduate of Stanford's uh, business school, one of the top students in the MBA program at, at Stanford, went off to work for Goldman Sachs, made close to a quarter of a million dollars as a broker there, young man in his uh, mid-20s, late-20s. Walked away from that job, went overseas. He's in Hong Kong now, sharing the gospel with businessmen there. He was asked by Stanford Business School to write a, an explanation in their little house organ why he made that, uh, that switch. And he said, I, I changed for the same reason that any thinking businessman would change from one business to another. I got a better offer. <laughs> Suppose uh, the Bon Marche sent you a letter giving you the privilege of a shopping spree for one day. All the goods that you could pile into your car in one day, you could dash back and forth for 24 hours, gather up goods, stuff them in your car. You could have all your friends come stuff these things in your car, and so you spend the whole day running around buying, grabbing shoes and clothes and perfume and all sorts of things. And then at the end of the day, you had a cardiac arrest and you died. Worked too hard. <clears throat> Happens all the time. It does. It's just not quite as obvious because men spend their and women spend their whole lives amassing a fortune and they drop dead. I uh, some years ago told a story about the man who uh, came across a genie and was given three wishes, and so he uh, wished for a Porsche. It appeared he wished for $10 million. There was all neatly stacked, put in the back seat of the car, decided to save the third wish. Jumped in his Porsche, started off down the road, uh, forgot himself, started singing that. He was so uh, so uh, happy he started singing that jingle of a few years ago. Oh, I wish I was an Oscar Mayer wiener. <laughs> Just uh, sort of puts everything in perspective. How do you men look at women in your office? Just another item on your menu? Someone to be used? Or do you see that woman as an eternal being who has eternal value in God's eyes and here's an opportunity to, to love someone purely and invest in their spiritual life and encourage along? Or is that just someone to, to use? You see, once we understand... The nature of things, and it changes our, our, our evaluation of everything. We start seeing, as peop, seeing people as the most important commodities on the face of, of the earth. Do you, do you react any differently to beautiful women than you do not-so-attractive women? Well, see, again, it just indicates the value that we put on a person's life. How do we view our possessions? How do we view our investments? What are we investing in? Are we investing in eternal commodities or things that, that will be destroyed? Some of you men and women are considering job changes, perhaps a job that offers a bit of upward mobility, more money. But it means uprooting your family. It means a great deal of disruption to your family life. You're going to have to go someplace else. I just want to ask you, is it worth it? Is it worth it just for some money that's not going to last? 
It's not going to make you happy. It's not going to satisfy you. You're not going to be one bit happier with that raise than you are. I tell you, I've gotten raises before. Now, maybe God wants you to go some other place. I, you know, it, it, that may very well be God's will, but if it's simply a choice that you made because you're going to make more money, I would think twice and maybe a number of other times about it. Is it really worth it? I have a friend who worked for years for Standard Oil who decided at one point in his life that it was far more important for him to stay put because he had a Bible, uh, he had a ministry with a number of businessmen in that area that was going great guns. People were finding Christ right and left. He was offered an opportunity to leave. He said, no, I can't do that because I, I, I've got to invest my life where it matters. And they just shelved it. He never went any higher in that company, but it's all right because he had his, his values in the line. See, he understood what matters and what doesn't matter. See, that's the, that's the new perspective that, that's given to us because we realize this isn't all there is. Our Lord's coming back, and he's, you know, that's so encouraging to realize that well, he's going to come back and set everything right. All the aches and pains in your body are going to be set right. All the hungers and longings and, and desires of your heart, the legitimate desires will be fulfilled. You'll have a body that's equal to the demands of the Spirit. You'll be with the people that have gone on before, that you've lost your loved ones. You're going to spend eternity with the Lord who died for you. My goodness, that just changes the way we look at everything. Everything. And that's why Paul says we ought to encourage one another with these words. He, uh, back in chapter 4, he concludes his argument there uh, with the same words, therefore encourage each other with these words, that is the words that we're all going to be caught up together with our loved ones who've died before us to meet the Lord in the air. And now he says in verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as in fact you're doing. Literally he says build one to one, face to face, each one build one. What an encouragement it is to come to someone who feels that they've lost everything in this life and tell them you haven't lost anything because you're going to lose it all one day anyway unless it's treasure that you send on ahead. Tremendous encouragement. When the early Christians got together, they had a, a phrase, actually a phrase that they'd compressed into a word that they used a lot. It's the word mirnatha, occurs in the... In 1 Corinthians 16, and we know from the Didache, which is a, a, one of the earliest Christian writings we know anything about, Didache was a compilation of the teaching of the apostles, 2nd century A.D., very early. They used that term whenever they got together, when they, when they celebrated the Lord's table, when they saw each other walking down the street, they'd say, Maranatha. It's an Aramaic word. It's composed of a number, actually it's a phrase. Mara is the word for Lord. Na means our. Tha means is coming. Our Lord is coming. Maranatha. Maranatha. I think that's a word we ought to add to our vocabulary. Write it down. And uh, this week, when someone is discouraged about the way things are going, when they're under a pile of debt, when they're struggling with their businesses, when their marriages are about to fall apart... And they're not sure they can hang in there any longer just to say to them, Maranatha, this isn't all there is. It was true yesterday, it's true today, it'll be true tomorrow. 
good word for us today is that Jesus is coming back. It's a sure thing. You can bet on it. You can count on it. It's true yesterday. It's true today. It'll be true when you see him. Like uh, Helmut Thielicke, a dear old German theologian, said, When Jesus comes, I'm going to say, I knew you meant it. Let's pray. Jesus told us to gather around his table and show forth his death until he comes. There are actually two reminders in, in this, this uh, in, in the Lord's table. There's a reminder of his death, and there's also the reminder that one of these days he's, he's coming back. We just have to keep that in mind because the things... Go on. The world seems to to get worse instead of better. We get the impression that we're going to leave this world a lot worse than it was when we came into it, and and we will. Things are getting worse and worse. And despite our best efforts to try to set things right, the world is running down, becoming more wicked, colder, and darker, more loveless. But our Lord's coming back. He's going to set things right. And in view of the fact that He's coming back, we have a role to play in this world to share the gospel with people, to invest our time and money and energy in things that really matter. Instead of storing up treasure here, store up treasure there. Whereas Jesus said, moth and rust don't corrupt and thieves can't break in and steal. We just have to know the value of things. Lord, thank you for this reminder again, this, this word that stiffens our spine, puts courage in us, enables us to face the hard things of our life, the health problems, the problems we have with our, with our kids, the marriage problems, the business struggles, the disorder and so much of life around us. Just that reminder again that you're coming. We echo... John's prayer, even so come, Lord Jesus. We can hardly wait. This morning as we gather around this this table, we just thank you for what this signifies. This is the death that makes it all possible. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.